This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. I'm going to talk with you and discuss with you Hebrews chapter 6, the verses 4 through 6, which is the author's interpretation of the sin against the Holy Spirit. It is not only in chapter 6, the verses 4 through 6, but it is also chapter 10, verse 26 through 31. And we are going to look at that passage as well. The author, as I explained, and if you open your Bibles to chapter 6, the epistle to the Hebrews, as I explained, (coughs) the author in verse 1 of chapter 6 uses the first person plural, us, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. And then verse 3, and God permitting, we will do so. There's a first person plural. And then in verse 4 and on, 4, 5, and 6, you have the third person plural. They, those, them, they fall away. They crucify, and so on. Then in verse 9, the author says, Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. Once again, the first person, plural. So here is a distinction which separates Two classes of people. God's people and those who willfully have fallen away. It is impossible. The Greek word is adunaton. Even if you don't know any Greek, you can read it. Adunaton. V is an N. A is the privative We use it in a social, a political. It means not. Duna, from which we have the word dynamite, means power, ability. Ton is the adverb. So we talk about the impact possibility. Note also, it is a four-syllable adjective or adverb. A-du-na-ton. And whenever you have three or more syllables to an adjective or an adverb, it means it is passive. It 
cannot be done. That's passive. And many times it also has a divine necessity. A word like this. We call it a verbal adjective or verbal adverb. For those. Tus in the Greek. And the next clause, to be brought back to repentance. So the sentence should read, it is impossible for those to be brought back to repentance because they're lost, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Good. Now we're going to analyze the phrases, clauses. There are four in succession under adunaton. What is so impossible? Who are these people? Well, I quickly read them and then go into them one by one. Who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. First one. Who have once been enlightened. The first thing you have to do is look at the Greek Hapax means once, not twice, not forever, once. At a given moment. And then you have the verb, or participle really, photisthentas. And again, if you don't know any Greek, you can see the word photo in it. And photo is light. Photos is light. Photography. Writing with light. Photis centas. All you Greek scholars were always told, remember when you see a theta in a verb, you say it is aorist passive. Right. Here we have the aorist Passive, once enlightened. They have been passive, have been enlightened, and once. Now, when did that take place? Well, I'll make it very simple. In the early Christian church, the people had to work seven days a week. Remember little Eutychus, probably a 17-year-old boy sitting in the windowsill, and Luke, who always seemed to have a smile on his face when he's writing. And he writes, these are the exact words, and Paul went on and on. In other words, he was not a reverend, but a never-end. <laughs> Luke, with a smile on his face, says... Poor Eutychus, sitting in the windowsill, couldn't keep his eyes open anymore, and down he went. Well, that's the story. What happened to the slave population of that day? At sunrise, or even before sunrise, the Christian church used to come together for baptism. 
In the evening, after the work was done, they came together for preaching of the word and communion, the Lord's Supper. Early in the morning, there was baptism. And now notice the symbolism. The dark night coming to an end. And the rising of the sun, S-U-N. The dark night of sin is past. And the rising of the S-O-N, sun, in the hearts and lives of those who were baptized. Enlightened by the word of God. Enlightened by the sun, S-O-N. You see it? Now, you can expand this and say, enlightened by the scriptures and all that, I know. I'm using a simple illustration. But these people have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and said, yes, I want to be part of the church. They have once been enlightened. Second, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Notice, gusamenus te teis doreas, teis eporaniu. The word te means and, and that means it is closely related, such as salt and pepper. You know, they go together. Related objects, related clauses, once been enlightened, and secondly, tasted the heavenly gift. Note, Gusamenus is aroist. And you have been told long ago, I trust, that an aroist means single action. Present tense, continued action. Imperfect tense, continued action. Perfect tense, it starts somewhere and continues. But Airways is once. What did they taste? They tasted, and here we have the genitive because of the verb to taste, the Doreas, the gift, namely the one that is heavenly. Now, what is that heavenly gift? And again, I make it very simple. They are now baptized. And now, in the evening, they come together for worship and partaking of the Lord's Supper. And they take this heavenly gift of bread and wine. They're part of the body of Christ. Literally and figuratively. They are partaking, symbolically, of the body and the blood. Right. What's more? Enlightened arrowist. Tasted arrowist. We continue. Who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Kaimetoxus genethentas prumatos hagiu. They have become. Aroist once more, Aroist passive, have become partakers metotoxus of the Holy Spirit. 
Well, what happens when a person has become part of the body of Christ? Before long, well, can you teach Sunday school? Uh, well, I, I don't know. And Well, try it. And so they become involved in one ministry or another ministry in the church. May I put it this way? They are guided by the Spirit. They're used by the Spirit. But note once more, you have the arrowist single action. Now the fourth line, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Again, we have gusamenus, like we had in the second clause. Aroist, middle. What did they taste? They tasted the kalon rhema, the good word of God, Theu. And related, they also tasted the powers, dunamais, powers of the coming age. Now these people sit in church and listen to the proclamation of the word and say, oh, wonderful, wasn't that a good sermon? It really fits so-and-so. And isn't it wonderful that we see that people are prospering, that prayers have been answered, that the sick are healed. We see the powers of the age to come. Yes, isn't it wonderful? And now we take the next clause. You have a participle. Parapesontas, translated, if they fall away. It is the conditional use of the participle. Not the causal, not the temporal, but the conditional use of the participle. Para alongside, pipto is the word for fall. Fall alongside, fall away. But it is aroist. They fall away. Once. Now we continue. It is impossible for those. Where? There we have the word tus. To be brought back to repentance. If you are able to follow the Greek, do so. Palin means again. Anakainidzain. You know the word kainos? We talked about it yesterday. Kaine is the word for new. Now we have the verb form. Kainidzo. To be made anew. Again. Anna. You have the word Anna and Anabaptist. To be baptized again. Present tense. It is impossible for those people again to be renewed 
for repentance, metanoian. Meta means after, and noia means nous, the mind. The mind is turned around, 180 degrees. That's repentance. You turn around. Repentance means leaving behind sin and serving God. It means leaving all your worldly friends behind and become part of the body of Christ. One example. In 1978-79, the administration and the Board of Trustees of Reformed Seminary gave me a sabbatical, which I spent in Cambridge, England, where I wrote my book on the parables of Jesus. And while I was doing all my research in the Tyndale Library in Cambridge, I used a book written by Ed Eta Linneman, who in 1966 graduated and received her Ph.D. under Rudolf Bultmann. Rudolf Bultmann was called the king of theologians, a liberal. And on one of the pages of that book, Eta Linneman writes, Sin is a figment of the imagination. In other words, <laughs> you get rid of that figment, you are rid of sin. That's how easy it is. Obviously, the book under supervision of Rudolf Bultmann, was liberal on the parables of Jesus. And then toward the end of my stay in Cambridge, on the door or bulletin board of Tyndale Library was a notice. This was probably about March, April of 1979. And the notice read, Ada Linneman, she never married, Ada Linneman, who taught at such and such a university in Germany, has converted and become, has become a, an evangelical Christian. And then the next sentence was very telling. She lost all her friends, but she has been surrounded by the body of Christ and accepted. What did Ada Linneman do? She was rejected in Germany. I wouldn't say persecuted, but she was persona non grata. She went to Indonesia on the island of Java learned Indonesian and taught in the seminary in Bata, the east part of Java. When she was in her early 70s, she came to the United States and lectured at a number of evangelical seminaries. And there it is, converted. Turned around, 180 degrees. When I met her, I said, Miss Linneman, <laughs> I read your book on the parables. She says, that's trash. Put it in the trash can. 
finished. <laughs> How true. There's a difference. Now back to to be brought back to repentance is impossible for those people who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who share the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. When they fall away, it is impossible to be renewed to repentance. Why? Well, here are two statements. The translation is, because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again. Look at the Greek. Anastaruntas. Staro is to crucify someone. Present tense. The ana means again, once more, and keep on doing it for themselves what are they crucifying whom are they crucifying no not the name of Jesus not the name of Christ not the name of Lord no the son of God now that should ring a bell see when the chief priest told the crowd in front of Pontius Pilate Crucify him, crucify him. They were not only saying, God, pour out your curse upon this man. No. What they are also saying is, we don't want this Jesus. We lift him up on a cross and we place him between heaven and earth. He is not worthy to live on the face of this earth. And now these people who have fallen away day after day do exactly that. It is the anger, the hatred against Christ and his followers. They are crucifying the Son of God. Not Jesus, not Christ, not Lord the Son of God. All over again. And secondly, they subject him to public disgrace. Paradigmatizontas. Present tense. Once again. Not aroist. No. The last two clauses, present tense. Paradigma is to make a mockery out of Jesus, the Son of God, day after day, subjecting him to public disgrace. That's rather final. The author is not saying, well, we can... <laughs> uh, file off the sharp edges a little bit and make it more accept. No! He's saying, this is it. And now, of course, all kinds of questions arise. And let me be one step ahead of you before you raise them. Here's one. How is it possible 
when a person is filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice the third statement, third clause. Who have shared in the Holy Spirit and then fall away. Are you sure that you talk about eternal damnation? Are you sure you're talking about sinning against the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is not even mentioned in the last part. In the first part it is shared in the Holy Spirit. Is that a sin against the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes. One example of the Old Testament, one example of the New Testament. And certainly we don't have have to be judgmental. God is the judge. Samuel anointed Saul to be king over Israel. And immediately after Saul has been anointed, he joins a band of prophets and is prophesying, filled with the Holy Spirit, and the people are saying, Saul among these prophets? And I can't believe it. Is that true? And yes, filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesied. What is the last chapter in 1 Samuel? And you read about the witch of Endor. And then you read that Saul committed suicide. Did Saul live a life acceptable to the Lord? The answer is no. He shows it on every page of 1 Samuel. Again, I'm not a judge. I leave that to my God. Second example. Jesus spent a whole night in prayer and then in the morning appointed 12 men and called them apostles. They're listed by names in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then we read that Jesus, and I'll put it very simple, after the first year in seminary, then Jesus sent out his disciples two by two. And then he told them, I'm giving you power over unclean spirits. And I want you to heal the sick. I want you to preach the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And now can you see, here is Judas with, let us say, Thomas, two by two. And Jesus gives him and them the blessing. And so Judas is going out healing the sick and casting out demons because he has that power. And can you see and hear Judas say, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, I say to you, evil spirit, come out of him. And it happened. And then we read that Satan enters Judas' heart. John talks about this chapter 13 of his gospel and Satan entered Judah's heart and he left and went outside and then there's that short statement and it was night now (laughs) look (laughs) you know when the sun sets it always gets dark 
Yeah, yes, but that's not the point. Spiritually, and it was night spiritually. And then Judas, as we noticed, threw the money back into the temple and went out and hanged himself. And then you go to Acts chapter 1. And the people are, 120 of them, are together in the upper room and they have to appoint a successor to Judas Iscariot. And all we read is statements from Scripture. May another take his place. And Judas, that is the man, went to the place where he's supposed to go. That's all Peter says. There is no judgment coming from his lips. It's not judgmental. Leave that to God. But there you have two examples. I'll give you one other example, personal example. And this was something like, oh, the mid-1980s. I was teaching in this room. Had about more 20 or 30 students who were taking my course on Hebrews. And I'd put these students to work and they had to give a 15-minute paper and present that to the class and then we would criticize it. And here was this student who was serving as a choir director in one of the local churches, gifted, He stood in front of class for 20 minutes and though he had his notes in front of him, he was just lecturing as if to say, no, there is nothing to it, just standing in front of my colleagues and my professor. Oh no, wonderful. And then he graduated and he took a place working under a senior pastor and we said, that is really the right approach. Going to such and such a place and working under reverend so-and-so, yes, wonderful and we heard nothing else but good reports then after about three years we learned we call him John by way of example John left that place and took a charge in another congregation one pastor we said that's it now the man is prepared he can do it he was there about a year and then we heard John has left his congregation, has left his wife and children, and has returned to the drug world from which he came. Now one thing warms the cockles of my heart is when I go to a church and listen to one of our graduates proclaim the word of God, and I say, Thank you, Lord, and thank you for giving me the privilege of being the instructor. And now I see the fruit of my labors. Thank you, Lord. I'm so happy. But when I hear about John returning to the drug world from which he came, I'm sad. Not judgmental. I'm sad. I'm talking about Hebrews chapter 6. Yes, Frank. So, uh, Dr. Kistemacher, are you saying then in his case, John's case, that it is impossible for him to come back? The question is, what do you do with a man who 
throws everything overboard and goes back into the world. The answer is, this man has come to know the truth of the gospel. This man has willfully, purposefully turned against God. It was not a slip. So make a distinction class between backsliding and purposefully, deliberately, deliberately going against better knowledge. And there I make the distinction. I'll prove it to you. Will you turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 10? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. And I read, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. The very first word in that text, and may I have the Greek a moment? Thank you. The very first word at Hebrews 10, 26, is hekousios, translated purposefully, deliberately, that is by choice, this is what I want to do. After receiving the knowledge, epignosin, that is fully knowing, not just an acquaintance, I have heard and I think I know, but fully informed, epignosin, the truth. He says there is no longer room for a sacrifice of sin. Yes. I'm sorry, Dr. Gessmer, to follow up on this, but in light of our discussion about the prodigal son, mm-hmm. uh, he knew very well, being brought up in his home, what, what the law was, what the truth right. was, mm-hmm. left deliberately did return Mm -hmm. and there's many children in church that grow up in the church teenagers young people who leave but some of them by God's grace seem to come back later right so I'm trying to understand this word it's impossible Mm -hmm. of chapter 6 okay the question is what do you do with the word impossible in chapter 6 verse 4 over against, let us say, the prodigal son who left the house of his father deliberately, yes, and then returned because God worked in his heart. Now, then what do you do with that word impossible? The word impossible implies that there is that deliberate choice after fully knowing and living in the Christian community and contributing to the Christian community and then fall away. Would you say, and I'm not putting you on the spot, but 
Would you say that a 17-year-old boy coming to his father and saying, Father, give me my inheritance, which means I wish you were dead, and then walk away from it all. Did he fully understand? Did he really live a Christian life? Did he teach it and then fall away? Purposely. Look, there is a difference between active sinning and passive sinning. We dealt with it yesterday. We went to Numbers chapter 15, remember? Where you have intentional sin and unintentional sin. What about Joseph Stalin, a seminary student? Dropped out of seminary, followed Lenin, and then eventually succeeded him. In 1933, he caused a famine in the breadbasket of Europe in the Ukraine. And he has something like 20 million deaths on his hands, on his record. And when Joseph Stalin, according to his uh, daughter, at his bedside in March of 1953, the last thing that Joseph Stalin did, he raised himself and shook his fist and then fell back and died. There is no hope. He knew better. That will be my answer. Again, you and I cannot be judges and you must be very careful not to say, well, here is one who is backsliding and he has received the penalty, (laughs) the sin against the Holy Spirit. Careful, careful. Now, there's one more thing that I have to point out. First, Matthew chapter 12. We did that this morning once more. Matthew chapter 12 and also Mark 3. So keep your finger at Matthew 12 and at Mark 3. I begin reading at Matthew 12:22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? They're asking the Pharisees and the scribes. Verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, or Beelzebub. And that is translated as Satan. Another word for Satan. Could this be Satan? They say, it is only by Satan, the prince of demons, that this fellow, don't even use Jesus' name, drives out demons. Look now at Mark 3.20, no, 22, Mark 3.22. And the teachers of the law, those who walked around with a PhD in Old Testament studies, the teachers of the law came down from Jerusalem and said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. 
Now you say, well, what does it have to do with the sin, the sin against the Holy Spirit? Well, go back to Matthew chapter 12. And I read for you verse 30 and on. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. That's a sin against the Holy Spirit. What does John say about it? Turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5. <coughs> I begin reading at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. That means spiritual death. Death means here, lead to death is spiritual death. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. Spiritual death. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is sin that does not lead to death. And then comes the last. Okay. I am not saying, said John, that he should pray about that. In other words... Says if there's someone who deliberately, actively, with hatred in his heart, has turned against God, though knowing the truth, he says, I leave it an open matter. If you want to pray about it, go ahead. Can you pray for Adolf Hitler? Can you pray for Idi Amin? Can you pray for? And I can go on and on. Look, we are not the judges. And John says, I'm not saying that you should pray. Let's have a closer look at chapter 10, verse 26. The word deliberately, akousios, is found first in the sentence. And you have been told that the first word in a Greek sentence receives all the emphasis. Also, the last word in a Greek sentence receives the emphasis. So, you could underline, you could italicize, if you wish, the word deliberately for emphasis. If we keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, then there is no sacrifice of sin left. Jesus did not die for you. Continues, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. 
of God. And now all you have to do is read the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, you read about the anger of God and of the Lamb sitting on the throne. And read with me quickly. Revelation 6, the last verse. Revelation chapter 6. Verse 17. For the great day of their wrath, that is, the Father and the Son, has come. And who can stand? Back to Hebrews chapter 10. An example taken from Moses, Old Testament. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. All you have to do is go to the book of Deuteronomy and you will find it. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled, that is, like stepping on a roach, trampled upon, what? The Son of God underfoot who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace it's not spelled out here but this is sinning actively not passively actively first against the son of God then against the maker of the covenant, the Father, and thirdly, against the Spirit, by insulting the Spirit. And he concludes, verse 30, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. He's saying, I'm warning you, people who listen to me, that you don't become the judge. It's so easy for us to open our mouths and to say, yep, he is gone. Yep, he is a sinner. Yep, he is, he sinned against the Holy Spirit. Yes, he must be, and on. The answer is, it is mine to avenge. The Lord will judge his people. He takes this from Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses. And you'll also find it in Psalm 135, verse 4. And then the last statement. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Any questions you have on this sin? A couple have been asked already. Yes. We have a question about um, the phrase, it's impossible to be brought back to repentance. Now, does that phrase, are we equating that with maybe saying it's impossible that they will ever repent? Because F.F. Bruce, in the uh, commentary he has in this verse that you had us read, seems to take it that it's impossible to 
bring these people to repentance because of um, their prior familiarity with the gospel. They've kind of been inoculated to the gospel. So he, it's like he's basically saying it's practically impossible to win these Christians back. And I wondered if there's any um, validity in that, considering uh, the word um, Ava Kainazen, to, the, to, to be made new again yeah. is that passive in that sense you know that it's impossible for them to be made repentant is that this, you know as opposed to is it impossible for them to repent you see the distinction I'm trying to draw okay we are dealing with the question is we're dealing with the word impossible and then how do you link this up with the statement to be brought back to repentance my this is the short answer short question now the answer is if you look at the Greek you will see that which is translated to be brought back to repentance is a present active <coughs> verb it's not passive even though it is translated to be brought back it is active, and if I would translate literally, I would have to say, for those, again, to renew them, again. See, so you have Anna, again, and Pollen, again, to again, again, renew them, active, to, for repentance. Says that's an impossibility. It can be worked out. And now you have to go to Matthew chapter 12, verses 31-32, where Jesus says, A sin against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Yes, I have died for him. A sin against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven in this life and in the life to come. They are forever outside the church. Yes, ma'am. Can I make a comment about another writer and have you comment on that? Okay. Are you familiar? I know you are with Jim Boyd. Yes, His right. comment mm -hmm. on this section is that these are Jewish Christians who are in danger of drifting back to Judaism, therefore by family pressure or whatever, going back to the sacrifices and participating in that. And essentially they really are re-crucifying Christ every time they participate in that again. And once they lose this, that they pass, then they're in danger of that never, never being able to get their position back in Christ. Yes, Jim Boyce, Reformed theologian, pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, passed away last year and he passed away writing about his death to the glory of God it was on the internet for everyone to read saying I'm not afraid of death God is working through my death to glorify himself he really died as a reformed pastor Jim Boyce is writing about Jewish people who, who fell away and went back into Judaism and they couldn't care less about Jesus anymore. 
I would like to add to that and say that, and now you have to be a bit gracious to me for not knowing the exact date, but I think it was about, about 225 A.D., that a Roman emperor by the name of Decius launched a persecution against the Christian as severe as ever, and Christians did fall away, you know, to save the neck. Do you believe in Jesus? No, I don't. Okay, you may go. Now, can these people who in that moment when they were asked, are you a Christian, yes or no, and deny the Lord, can they be brought back to salvation? Well, what about Peter? Lord, if all forsake you, I will not. What does the man do? I don't know him. And he cursed, I don't know him. And once more he cursed, I don't know him, never known him. Was Peter lost? No, he wept bitterly. And he went back to the apostles. And Sunday morning, he was one of the first ones to meet Jesus. And yes, and then came that breakfast morning on the shore of the Lake of Galilee. Simon, son of John. Do you love me? Uh, No, uh, no, uh, no, Lord. See, what Jesus did, he said, do you agapao me? Do you really, with a divine love, love me? And the answer was, no, Lord. I use the word phileo. I have an affection to you. Simon, second time, do you agapao me? Uh, No, Lord, I phileo you. Third time, Simon, do you phileo me? Yes, Lord, I phileo you. There it is. Reinstated. Yes, the Lord reinstates people who have sinned against the Son of Man. Now comes the point for Jim Boyce. Yes, there may have been Jewish people who said, I have nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth because he is a heretic and I hate him. And then with Jim Boyce I say, yes, there's no hope because now that particular person has sinned against the Holy Spirit and there is no hope. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Is there any significance to, uh, in chapter 10, the writer using the first person, plural, <laughs> we, instead of they? Right. Very good question. What do you do with verse 26 in chapter 10 if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth? The interesting part is... <clears throat> by way of answer, the interesting part is that a present participle is used. May I use your Greek New Testament a moment? Thank you. <clears throat> he says, ekousios, deliberately, and then he has 
Hamatanonton Hamon. That is, we are keeping on sinning. Now, now you can be picky and say, well, what about the writer himself? He is using this in a conditional sentence. If, he says. Now, look. When I use the word if, I can talk about a fact. And I can say, if it is sunny out, and you look outside, you'll have to turn around to see, but you know it is. If it is sunny out, I really have to protect myself and put some sunscreen on. That's an if statement. That's a, a matter of fact. But if I say, if <laughs> I had a billion dollars, I would drive a Lexus. Yeah, but I don't have a million dollars. See, now I talk about a fact which is not true. You feel, follow me now? Okay. When Simon Peter was aboard that boat and Jesus comes walking on the waves of Galilee, what does Simon Peter say? By the way, you don't find it in Mark's Gospel because Simon Peter stood behind Mark relating this story and when it comes to personal things and you leave those things out. But Matthew writes about it. And what does Matthew tell us? He tells us Jesus, uh, Jesus comes walking and Peter says, Lord, if it is you, I would like to walk on the waves too. Now, does he say, I have my doubts that it is you, Lord? No. He's talking about a fact. If it is you, and I know it is you, may I also walk. There's no question about it. Now we are talking about if we keep on sinning. And he's writing to believers writing about himself and the believers. He's saying, no, it's not true for you and for me. You see, because of that if. If we would do it, but we're not, there would be no sacrifice of sin left. And that's how I would interpret it. Thank you. Anything else? Yes, Hunter. But doesn't that take away, I mean, I agree with what you're saying, but then I don't understand the significance going back to Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, because there's still a conditional in verse 6 of Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. And I, so I don't understand why we're making a big point about they, 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 and those, 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 if we're still talking about conditional statements here. Okay. It seems that that loses its power. The question is, what do you do with Hebrews 6? And there you have the if clause, if they fall away. That also is a participle form. Notice you have parapesontas. There is no I-if word. Now, we have other translations here. What does the NASB say for the if clause? Eh, pardon me? In 
and then have fallen away. Okay, so they have done away with the if clause. Uh, when you deal with a participle which stands by itself, it can be conditional, it can be causal, because they fall away. It can be uh, temporal, when they fall away, and or then they fall away. Uh, various ways of doing it, but that's the clause that we have to so deal with. So you're saying that you would translate that, you would disagree with the NIV translation on the uh, conditional statement and you would agree more with um, an, an, an and then these are things that translators have to work with and it's I worked on the NIV it's difficult at times what do we do now and one will say this and the other says that and sometimes you just have to make the point and say this is our choice and live with it the preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.